I do think the very worst thing you can do on your profile is not to be overly cocky, but to be underly cocky, to like say, hey, you know, um, I've done a couple of things, but you know, it's up to you to recruit and figure out why they connect to the job. I'm just going to throw out the bare minimum. Because again, life is too short to miss out on an awesome opportunity because we were too afraid to put ourselves out there. Um, there's something that my grandfather always said, you've got to always toot your own horn because no one's going to toot it for you. And I think that's doubly true on LinkedIn. So please toot your horn, toot it proudly, and make the most of this unique opportunity. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we help you navigate the emotional and promotional sides of the job search in order to change careers with confidence. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach at Career Therapy, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Please welcome Jeremy Schiefling to the podcast. Jeremy is the Principal Product Marketing Manager at Khan Academy, the VP of Marketing at Break Into Tech and previously worked as a senior product marketing manager at LinkedIn itself, so he knows all of the hidden platform secrets. Our paths first crossed at Udacity, and I've been a big fan of his work over the years, helping people start their careers in tech. Today, we dig into the nitty gritty parts of LinkedIn. We get into the mindset of the recruiter, and we talk about how to optimize profiles for keywords, pairing the right tools with the right mindsets so you can overcome imposter syndrome, network effectively, and get the jobs that everyone is fighting for. Thank you for tuning into this episode and supporting the show. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeremy Schiefling. Today's episode is brought to you by HireEct.us, a free app that lets hiring teams and candidates instantly chat about incredible job opportunities. If you're a hiring manager, CEO, or recruiter, download the HireEct app to see a curated list of talented individuals and accelerate your hiring process 10 times faster than traditional ways. And if you're a job seeker, join the platform to start talking to decision makers at startups who are ready to hire. Businesses grow faster when everyone is communicating seamlessly. Download HireEct.us, that's H-I-R-E-C-T, dot us today so we've been talking before the call here about you know some of the maybe hidden or secret or or maybe they're obvious but people just don't know about them pieces of linkedin and i really am super excited right now because there are so many changes in the world through the great resignation through mass layoffs that we're seeing with some companies through the pandemics ups and downs and everything like there's just so many changes happening and i think understanding the tools that are that people are using to navigate these changes are, is really important. You've got such a deep history here. So maybe we can just kick off. I'd love to get your thoughts on like, you know, before we get into the modern day of LinkedIn, like how has LinkedIn changed over the years? Like what are some of the things that people maybe don't realize about the platform and how it's evolved over time? Yeah, great question. First of all, thanks for having me on the show, Martin. You know, thanks for being here. Work together at Udacity. I've always been a huge <laughs> fan of yours. I know you've you know, so many job seekers around the world unlock opportunities. So oh, I appreciate definitely <laughs> love this opportunity to, to share what I've learned as well. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Like I worked for LinkedIn about a decade ago, right after they IPO'd. And LinkedIn was in a lot of flux, of course, as any company that goes public um, naturally is. But here's the funny thing is, even five years after it was founded or 15 years after it went public, the core things that drive LinkedIn have actually remained the same, no matter how the site has looked different. And that is 
that if you were a recruiter who existed before LinkedIn, think about how terrible your job was. You know, maybe back in the day, 50 or 100 years ago, you were posting classified ads in the newspaper, hoping desperately to find someone who'd respond. Or in the 90s, maybe you were going on monster.com and being overwhelmed with all these resumes from people who weren't even really qualified for your role. And then all of a sudden, sometime around 2005, the switch is flipped where basically you have all the power for the first time in the history of recruiting. You can go onto the web, you can say, I need a product manager or an engineer or a salesperson and find the very best people in the world, no matter where they are. That has never existed before. And that fundamental truth has been true for the last 15 years and will be true for the next 15 as well. So if you're a job seeker, don't be thrown by all the bells and whistles, all the new features. Just make sure you understand the recruiter behind the scenes and you use that understanding to make sure that you get found. I love that. And what are some of the bells and whistles that typically distract people? What would you say are the things that are least important that people spend way too much time on? Yeah, I'll give you two really good examples. And I know my old LinkedIn colleagues are going to kill me for saying this, but the first one is definitely LinkedIn premium. And you know, obviously LinkedIn is a public business and it's in its interest to try to get people to buy as much stuff. But the reality is, is that the core functionality of making yourself visible to recruiters on LinkedIn doesn't cost a cent and never will because recruiters are the ones who actually drive the most revenue to LinkedIn's bottom line. And so it's in their interest to make it really easy for them to find you. And so you can buy a LinkedIn recruiter, you can spend all this money, but if you just make sure that your profile has the right keywords and is super desirable and attractive, you can do that without spending a cent. So that's the first thing. The second thing are things like endorsements or these new features that are all around like, hey, LinkedIn's a social network too. It's viral, it's fun, it's exciting. And at the end of the day, I say good for LinkedIn. You know, it's great marketing for them. But LinkedIn should always be first and foremost a tool for you, the job seeker. You want to achieve a specific outcome and LinkedIn is the best way to get there. And it doesn't involve all these schemes or doing all this other stuff. It's like, just understand the recruiter, serve their needs, get found by the algorithm, get chosen for opportunity. And if you come back to that time and again, you can't go wrong. I love that. And, and I think that idea of it being a tool is incredibly important. And, and almost looking at everything in the job search is tools that you have at your disposal, right? Like people look at everything and they take everything so personally, like your personal brand. Oh, it has to represent everything about me. It's like, no, it has to sell your services. It's like, uh, you know, oh, I need to like make these amazing connections and like be friends with everyone. I mean, sure. It's nice if you get a friendship, but like you, professional connections are great. Like there's all sorts of things that we get wrapped up in, in the blurring of lines because social networks are blurry. Um, where do you feel like people maybe fall into a trap when it comes to using these tools um, maybe forgetting that they are tools? Like uh, what, what are some of the things that we can do to sort of keep a, a, a rational head while getting into this space? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, like again, as LinkedIn adds more me too social media features like videos and polls and all this kind of stuff, you can think, oh, I've got to like build really strong relationship here as if it was, you know, another Facebook or something like that. But the beauty of networking, at least in the North American business culture, is that weak ties, science has actually shown, are much more powerful for helping you find opportunity and strong ties. And basically what the sociologists are getting at there is that your best friends, your family, 
all the people you might naturally gravitate towards to help you find a job, they're not that helpful. It's for the simple reason that they know the same people you know. So, you know, basic network theory, you have these overlapping networks. Whereas it's the weak ties, you know, that person you worked with three jobs ago, or your old professor, whoever like that, they, they may be three or four degrees separated from you, but that's the person who actually knows about the new information and the new opportunity that you weren't even aware of. And so when you come to LinkedIn, always think about that power of weak ties where you don't have to have 20 years of deep relationship with someone in order to say, hey, I saw your team is hiring. Would you introduce me to the hiring manager? Or I'm curious about a role in product management. Is that something that you could share 10 minutes of your time with? For the most part, people love to pay it forward to share that advice. And the number one thing that you can do as a job seeker is just to ask, to put yourself out there, and now you're in the game. It's so true. I, I actually had someone from high school reach out to me like maybe a year ago. And they were like, hey, I see you're working at this place. You, you know, you mind putting in a good word for me? And I was like, well, you weren't the nicest person to me in high school, but you weren't the meanest person. So I guess I'll help. <laughs> you know, like, it, people are way more uh, kind than people are more kind to us than we are to ourselves sometimes. Yes. And, and I think that yes. we get into our, in our own way here. And I think part of that is, is sort of the culture of the job search. There's so much stuff out there, like focused on your passion and focused on your, you know, meaning and all these different things. And there's a lot of good stuff in there, but there's also a lot of stuff that overwhelms people, right? You're going through this big life transition and people are also trying to like pile on the fact that you have to find like your God-given meaning on the planet as well. It's like, I just want to get paid. Um, one of the things that I hear people complain about with LinkedIn all the time, and, and this is sort of in the same vein of it being a tool, right? Is that we keep adding tools, but we never seem to take away any tools from the job search. So like cover letters made sense when we were sending real letters or faxes because they introduced who you are and what job you're applying to. But now everything is like tied to an, to the actual posting. So why do we need all these things? Is there anything that you've seen that any tools that have fallen off or maybe people don't need to focus as much on and they should shift their focus to other things like certain features of LinkedIn? Yeah. And I really do think that LinkedIn is both given and taken away there. Again, it's created all this confusion by adding all these new things in. People assume anything LinkedIn adds, they have to do. Absolutely wrong. You know, recruiters only care about a few things and so should you. And so if you put yourself in the recruiter's shoes and you imagine a giant pile of resumes and cover letters that people have spent hours and hours sweating over, but they're totally anonymous strangers versus one handpicked candidate who your best friend of the company has whispered into your ear, you've got to check out Martin. Martin is amazing. Now, even if Martin has no cover letter and has spent maybe one hour on his resume total, who do you think you're going to pick with your scarce time as a recruiter? Are you going to pick the anonymous strangers or are you going to pick that friend of a friend? And human nature and science shows us time and again, it's all about those relationships. So skip all these steps that ultimately don't add that much value to your search and come back to the one thing that does, which is human connection. If you can build a bridge into a company through someone you know or someone they know, then you've given yourself a much more massive advantage than a hundred different cover letters. So we're hitting on that human connection and we're hitting on the like those loose connections or those weak connections being really important. So how, do, how does someone actually go about doing that using the LinkedIn platform in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the most important thing is recognizing no matter what your background, where you came from, where you went to school, if you didn't go to school at all, 
you're going to have connections with people on the inside and LinkedIn's going to illuminate that. To give you an example, let's say you want to get a job at Google and you're like, I don't know anyone at Google. I don't work in tech. You know, I'm sitting here in Atlanta and I've never even been to California. Well, guess what? If you went onto LinkedIn and said, show me everyone who works at Google, who knows someone that I do, second degree connection, as LinkedIn says, if you have even 100 connections, you are almost guaranteed to find someone who can be that bridge, who can help introduce you to someone on the inside. So again, a friend of a friend is a great place to start. If you did go to school, great, mine your alumni connections. You know, it could be a small liberal arts college, a giant state university, wherever, you're probably going to find some Googlers who also attended that same school. You know, even if all you've done is volunteer at this point, no paid work experience whatsoever, I promise you, having done this search recently, if you go to the Google company directory on LinkedIn and say, show me all the Googlers who volunteer at Habitat for Humanity, just like I do, you're going to find hundreds of them. And you can reach out based on that shared interest, that shared passion, because it says so much about your values. So bottom line is, there's always going to be some way in. It's just up to you to strike up that conversation. Yeah. And it, it is funny because, you know, anytime I show someone LinkedIn, the first thing they do is click on the jobs listings, right? The, all the different filters, right? They go straight to jobs. And I'm like, you know, most companies don't even have their jobs listed there. Uh, and there's, you're just missing out on this huge, um, you know, expansive, like once, once you actually shift away from that jobs uh, piece of the site and you go to the people part of the site, um, and they, they actually made it harder to find in recent years. Um, but what I tell people to do is click on the search bar and just hit enter and it'll take you to that, like filter page yeah. and then click the people piece. Um, hard to explain in, in <laughs> words, but, um, when you get to that people piece, right? Like there's 700 million or something like that contacts. And then you've got to like put in your specific filters to narrow that down to meet people. But, uh, one of the things that I find that people struggle with is like, just the overwhelming number of people and the overwhelming number of like, oh my gosh, how am I going to reach out to all these people? Because like literally, if you just take that 700 million and you, it, you don't filter at all, you just go down, do you need help? Do you need help? Do you need help? <laughs> you like do a brute force. You could probably find a job, but most people aren't going to do that. So like, uh, you know, you got to get that message out. You got to get them to respond to it. People's inboxes are filled with a bunch of spam in, in their LinkedIn now with mine is getting worse and worse. Right. So like, how do you actually break through and get someone to see your message and then also respond to your message and then engage with you? It seems like, you know, some people are too scared to even go to that search page, let alone take those next steps. What are some things that can lower that barrier uh, to action? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a professional marketer by day. And I think that a lot of times we as job seekers do a lousy job of marketing our number one resource or product, which is our talent, right? Like as a job seeker, you are marketing you. And so um, just like a great marketer knows their audience, knows how to talk to their audience, that's what you want to do on LinkedIn. So first of all, you want to find people who have things in common with you and all the ways we talked about, you know, people who maybe majored in the same thing you majored in or went to the same school, which you can do by looking up your university. Once you have these people with these bonds, then you don't reach out with sort of a me-focused approach like so many students and recent grads do. Like, hey, you went to XYZ school, same as me, give me a job. You know, even the most diehard alum is not gonna respond to that message. Instead, you put yourself in their shoes and you say like, hey, if I'm an alum, I'm five, 10, 15 years out of school, the one thing I want more from a recent grad is not 
give me a job, but give me a sense of connection, a sense of sort of passing it forward to the next generation, the same way I was helped when I was walking out of our alma mater. And so if you can reach out and say, hey, you know, Martin, I noticed that you and I had studied the same thing at the same school. I'm so curious about your career and I would love to learn from your expertise. I know you must be incredibly busy, but even 10 minutes could really shape my career path. Now, only the most sort of Grinch-like alumni are not gonna to respond to that because it's all about them. It's all about sort of honoring their expertise and giving them a microphone to share what they've learned. So again, find people with things in common and then reach out based on those commonalities, giving them a chance to really play up what they've learned along the way. Yeah, and this, and this really brings us into some of the psychology of it, right? Because we had talked previously and, and one of the things that kind of came up in our conversation was this idea that job seekers typically don't understand their worth, right? They want a paycheck and they want a job, but they don't understand that a company only gives you a job if they're going to have an ROI that's higher than what they pay you, right? So we don't, like, I'll ask someone, like, why would a company hire a web developer? And they're like, because they have it listed. And I'm like, that's, no, that's, <laughs> there's an ROI there. So like, but this also creates a sense of like, woe is me, um, where people think employers are these like gods on mountains who have all the power. Um, how can we shift that mindset? Like, what would you say to someone who is in that sort of woe is me, they have all the power, I can't catch a break, and, you know, really not understanding the worth that you bring to the table? What would you say to someone in that, in that space? Yeah, and I totally get it. You know, imposter syndrome is real. There's definitely this power imbalance between big organizations and individual job seekers. But I think especially right now in this great resignation moment, the tables have really flipped. And all you have to do is put yourself in the shoes of a hiring manager, you know, a boss at any organization in the world. And imagine what's happening. That boss has people leaving their team on a weekly or monthly basis. They're trying to replace them, but people are not returning their phone calls. They're not developing any new candidates. And that's just creating more and more work and stress for them and their remaining teammates. So they have this massive pain point. And then all of a sudden you, as a savvy job seeker comes in, kind of like an aspirin or Tylenol for that pain, right? They have way too much to get done. They are not enjoying life, not enjoying their job anymore. And you're like, hey, I can take some of that pain off your plate and give you the life that you want. If you can make that case to any employer in the world, the job is yours. And again, it's not just resumes and cover letters, something more fundamental. It's empathy, right? What does it feel like to be the other person on the other side of the screen? Not just the great wizard behind the curtain, but another actual human being who has their own problems, problems that you are uniquely set up to solve. Yeah, it kind of brings up that old adage, right? Like, don't show up with a problem, show up with a solution. And a lot of people yeah. show up to interviews going, I have a problem of being unemployed. I have a problem of not having a mentor. I have a problem of not having enough money. Can you solve those problems for me and hire me, right? And it really does sort of shit. It, it, once you shift to that, I'm here to help mindset and everything you say is like, oh yeah, no, I mean, I, of course, I'm going to get paid and get mentorship and get those things from this role, hopefully. Um, well, definitely pay at least. And, <laughs> and then it's like, now we got to shift to problem solving. And it's so funny when I talk to people, right? The question always comes up in an interview. What are your strengths and weaknesses? And everyone always says, my strength is problem solving and my weakness is procrastination. And I go, problem solving. Okay. Do you realize that the definition of a job is solving problems? So like, that's not an answer because like, right. I, I always make the joke like, well, I know someone who needs their dog walked. Would you like to do that? Because that's a problem that needs to be solved. <laughs> and like, 
when we're thinking about problem solving, we really do have to go that level deeper. And this again is where I think LinkedIn becomes this amazing tool because um, there's so much research you can do both in the job board, but also in people's profiles. So like, as you're looking for people to, to talk to, you can also look at what's in their profile and see some of the realities or maybe some of the there, there's a dis, there's typically a discrepancy between what's in the job description and what's in the actual job, right? And so by looking at profiles, you might get a peek into that. But what do you what do you sort of see when it comes to job descriptions or people's profiles? Like how can we utilize these things to figure out the value that we bring? Yeah, you know it's so funny because as someone who used to be a recruiter and has been a hiring manager, like I know that these job descriptions can often seem so overwhelming to candidates a hundred bullet points and all this jargon. It's like, what do they really want? But if you, again, double click through all the sort of like, um, you know, jargon, there is a cry for help behind every one of those bullets, a team and a hiring manager with too much to do and too little talent to get it done. And so your job is to reverse engineer all those bullets and say, what does that really mean? Do they need someone who's really great at putting out fires because they operate in a high stress environment. Do they need someone who's an incredibly um, gifted bridge builder? Because it's all about establishing relationships internally or externally. And then once you understand their pain, that's what you can feed back to them in terms of your strengths in your resume, in your cover letter, in your outreach on LinkedIn, and yes, even in your interviews. So you're really speaking their language. And then at the end of the day, when the hiring committee sits down to say, hey, who's really going to fill this seat the best way? the person who's speaking the language already, who's already helping me imagine them doing the job versus the person who's just hypothetically qualified, they get the job every time. I really like that. I like how you said there's a cry for help behind every bullet. Um, it really, I always describe companies as just a bunch of people running around with their hair on fire. <laughs> like right, not knowing right, what to exactly. do. It's like, and I think that's one of the issues, right? Like you go to these job descriptions and the company sounds so incredible, right? They they're, they're the best place to work. They, um, they have the best opportunities, the best 401k, the best growth opportunity. And like, I always ask people like in all of your previous jobs, did it ever live up to what you expected it to? And the answer is always no, because a company is just a bunch of people trying to do things. Right. And that's, we're all human and we all have shortcomings. And one of the funny things is to talk to someone who like, really wants to work at Google, right? They're dying to work at Google. And then they're like, my career will never go anywhere if I don't work at Google. And then the next call I have is someone who's like, I got to get out of Google. I can't stand right. working at <laughs> Google, right? Um, what are some red flags that we can look out for in these job descriptions or in these company? Because it's also a marketing document, right? A job description is trying to yeah. sell you on the company, right? What are some of the red flags to look out for? Yeah, so I do think you could probably look at the job description first. If there really are a hundred bullet points, that might send you towards the hills because it's a lack of prioritization and a lack of reality in terms of they want this dream unicorn candidate. No one will ever satisfy them. That being said, I do believe that everything does come back to relationships in the end. And so no matter how poorly written the job description is, a great boss is going to be worth their weight in gold. But how do you predict who's going to be a great boss versus a terrible boss, right? How do you separate the Michael Scotts from everyone else? And so I do think that comes back to tapping the power of your network. Like, unfortunately, as far as I know, there's no like ratemyboss.com, although there probably should be. Um, and so in lieu of that, what I've always done, and this has actually been really eye-opening, is I've tried to find people 
who've reported or worked with that person in the past. So for example, if there was a job at Google that you were considering, I would wanna find other people who maybe have left Google, but used to be on that team. And so they have a little bit more sort of independence to share their true thoughts. And I would reach out and say like flat out, like we've all been in this position, a job that seems too good to be true, but is it? Could you just give me the real sense of what this person was like, their reputation, how they worked with the reports, what they were known for? In 90% of the cases, I hear great things. This person is amazing. People flock to that team. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. That's where I want to work. But I will tell you, there are certain places, I won't name any names, <laughs> where people have said, Jeremy, start running now. <laughs> and if you think about how like, you know, life is short, what has the last two years shown us? But the fact is, our time on this planet is limited, and we've got to make the most of it. You don't want to spend three years with a toxic boss and five years with a therapist afterwards trying to work through all the poison. <laughs> like save yourself that trouble up front by learning from people who've been there before. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is incredible. And I think uh, looking at people that used to work at the company, and again, this is doing your research, right? Because this is what spills over into the interview if you don't do it ahead of time, right? I, you know, at the end of an interview, they always say, what questions do you have for me? And the worst question you can ask is, how do you like working here? This yeah. person is literally representing the company right now on the company's time being paid by the, they're not going to give you an honest answer, but you get a, you know, coffee or a drink with someone who quit that company or used to work for that company. Maybe you got to take a little bit grain of salt with the <laughs> things they're saying, but you'll get some real, real insights uh, from that. And I love that idea of ratemyboss.com. That'd be incredible if that existed. Um, you mentioned earlier getting into the recruiter's head and being found by the algorithm. But let's get into the recruiter piece because I think people have a fundamental misunderstanding of what motivates a recruiter, what is helpful to a recruiter. A lot of people think recruiters are like career coaches, like they're on your side supporting you and like here to train you on how to get the job and sell you like, oh, well, I talked to a recruiter, so I'm good. I can stop job searching. They've got it for me. And it's like, are you paying this person? Cause like how this isn't a, this, that's not the service they provide. Yeah. So what is it that people misunderstand about the world of recruiting that negatively impacts their job search? Yeah. So the number one thing you have to understand is that recruiters more than anyone else in the company are mercenaries. You know, look at any recruiter's profile and they've probably been at 10 or 20 different companies. Um, because at the end of the day, unlike the people on the team you're working with or your future boss, they're not wedded to that specific team or product or mission. Their job is very simple. I need to put a body in the seat and then I need to move on to the next 10 or 20 uh, open shares that are begging out for support. And so once you put yourself in those shoes, you're like, wait a second, they're never going to be my buddy or my career coach. They don't have time for that. They don't have the loyalty for that. They've got to find someone who just makes sense at a surface level because they're never going to get fired for choosing someone who seems pretty good at the credential or resume or LinkedIn level. And then they move on to the next search. And yeah, maybe you don't turn out to be the best hire ever, but by the time you're fired, they've already moved on to a different company. <laughs> Whereas, wow. think about this, the hiring manager who we often never think about or don't even know who it is until the actual interview stage, they're the one with the real skin in the game. Because your future boss can either be made incredibly happy by hiring the world's best person for the job, you know, less work for them, you make them look awesome. All the stuff they were hoping for is provided by hiring the right person. Whereas if you're the wrong hire, 
Now they got to put you on a probation plan. Now they got to fire you. Now they got to go through the hiring process all over again and the training process all over again. And so they definitely have a strong interest in getting rock stars onto their team. And if at all possible, ditch the recruiter and try to build a relationship with that hiring manager who does have totally aligned incentives. We interrupt today's episode to let you know about Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program. If you're feeling paralyzed by job search procrastination and unsure of what to do next in your career, we're here to help. Each month as a member, you will get access to two one-on-one coaching calls, unlimited virtual chat with your coach via Slack, invitations to bi-weekly group coaching sessions, and lifetime access to our eight-part job search curriculum. Want to take your search to the next level? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free 15-minute consultation to chat with me today and see if coaching is right for you. Now back to our show. And this actually is really good because there's people always say, who do I network with, right? Should I network with a senior person or a junior person or the hiring manager or the recruiter? And they ask me, and I'm like, everyone just go, just, just start networking. Stop asking these questions. But obviously (laughs) once you're in the mode of networking, you do want to refine your approach. And, and one of the things I try to help people with is this idea of like understanding the different motivations. So you've already really laid out some of the motivations here for the recruiter and the hiring manager and recruiters are incentive based on like commissions or whatever it might be that they're incentivized by. Um, And then the hiring manager is incentivized by different things. And then let's say you talk to like the CEO before you get hired, they're incentivized by, or they're focused on bigger things. Like what are, what are maybe the things when it comes to hiring manager, is it the is it the team dynamic? Is it the the skills on the team? Like, what are maybe a handful of the the incentives or priorities that they have that a job seeker maybe needs to slow down and articulate better in their search? Yeah, and I do think it comes back to that idea of pain points, and like again, using a little bit of imagination, even if you've never been a boss before, and trying to envision what would it feel like to have to run this team. So you're absolutely right. First and foremost, it's about productivity, being successful at the job, right? I don't want to spend all of my time training someone. I want someone who can come in, hit the ground running, be independent, you know, even if it's a relatively junior role. So that's the number one thing. But then think about the fact that if you might have an all-star level performer who's a total jerk, and now all of your other all-star performers are quitting or threatening to quit because they can't stand working with you. Well, that's a nightmare for the boss too. So you're absolutely right. It is about camaraderie. It is about teamwork. And so you've got to be that full package where you solve the productivity problem, you solve the team cohesion problem, and then ultimately through all of your strong performance, you're helping them solve their ultimate problem, which is how do they get promoted, right? Or how do they retain their job, which is looking good to their own boss. So think about what the boss needs and even what the boss's boss needs, because of course, that's what the original boss is always considering. Yeah, that's so true. And this is where people get really caught up in culture fit, I think. And the culture fit question, I think, freaks people out because, you know, you're told to be authentic and be yourself. And then you're told that you need to fit in the culture or you get like, well, we just went with someone who's a better fit. Like when people get that response, what what are they really saying? Because, you know, the hardest thing for job seekers, you don't really get great feedback. So you don't always know what you did wrong. And maybe you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe you just were slightly less good than the person who got it. But what do you think the culture fit thing is or how people should be interpreting the feedback that they get from folks? Yeah, so, you know, it is really frustrating. I'll acknowledge that first and foremost. 
And obviously, you know, there are legal complications where hiring managers and recruiters don't want to get into trouble by revealing too much and opening themselves up to lawsuits. So that, I mean, it certainly makes sense from a sort of risk mitigation perspective. That being said, you should absolutely never accept, oh, which wasn't a fit as a response, because frankly, that's BS. And I'll explain why for two reasons. The first one is, is that, you know, at the end of the day, if you were going to be a great performer and you were going to make that person's team amazing, they're going to probably hire you no matter whatever the alleged culture is. So just know that probably there is something about the way they perceived your ability to be an effective performer that was lacking. And it's a lot easier to say, oh, it's just a lack of fit. And they have to call out, I don't really trust that you can build financial models, or I think that your designs are subpar. So really bring in some very trustworthy friends, people from the industry if possible, who aren't afraid to call out like, hey, if I saw your portfolio in an interview, I would also ding you for this reason. And then that way you can get the feedback you're not getting from the inside. So try to get the real feedback. And then number two, I think the other thing is, is like, yes, there is this idea that like every organization has a different culture, but honestly, you're not gonna be happy at work if you are trying to become someone else to make the rest of your teammates happy, right? Maybe you could pull that off for 30 minutes in an interview, but are you gonna be able to be an imposter for years or five years and still be happy? So I would say really do stick with your guns because you want them to want you as badly as you want them. And if you're ultimately trying to become you know, a circular peg instead of a square peg to fit in, that's going to come back to haunt you in the long run. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're hitting on something so important here. Sometimes rejection is very good. <laughs> like, yes. There yes. have been jobs that I've gotten because I'm good at getting jobs, obviously, because I teach this stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. I wasn't always, I used to be the worst at getting jobs, but I've <laughs> changed my tune. But um, I remember I got this one job once where at the end of my like, you know, presentation that I had to give, the creative director was like, are you sure you want to be on the account team? Because that was really creative. Uh, don't you want to be on the creative team? And I was like, are there any jobs on the creative team? And he's like, no. And I go, then I guess yeah. I'll do account. Biggest mistake. I should have definitely held out for a creative role. But it is funny how like sometimes that rejection is such a positive thing. I remember uh, University of Chicago rejected me once and they told me in the interview why they were like, we're looking at your entrepreneurship background and we feel like you're going to be frustrated with how long it takes to do things here. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? And they're like, it'll take six months to get an event proved. And I, event approved. I can't talk today. And I was like, oh yeah, that would drive me crazy. <laughs> but, but it's like, sometimes not getting the job is a great thing. And I don't think that's talked about enough in the job search, right? Like sometimes they reject you because they actually have a pretty good sense that you're not going to do well. But as a job seeker, you take that as this, like, I'll never, ever get a job in this industry, right? So how do we manage this emotional turmoil that people go through? Because I think LinkedIn can be this incredible tool to connect with people and to research and to put yourself out there and to get in touch. But it can also be this place of isolation and ghosting and comparison and everything else. So you know, there's good and bad in everything. And, and when the bad starts to creep in, what should people do about it? How can they sort of calm themselves down and get back to a good place? Yeah, totally. Because it's so common. You know, every job seeker goes through that sort of trough of despair where it's like they came in excited, they built their shiny new resume, they wrote the cover letter, and then all of a sudden they hit this absolute speed bump 
it's completely like throwing them off course. But I think the number one thing you can do is you can shift the balance of power so that ultimately the power dynamics work towards your favor and lift you up as opposed to pushing you down. Here's what I mean. If you're the company, you automatically start out in a good place. There's one job and there's 100 or 500 or 1,000 candidates. So you as the recruiter or the hiring manager feel pretty darn good about yourself because everyone wants to work for you and you get to call the shots. The problem is, is that for a job seeker, we often have like this one company we've put on a pedestal and it might not even be a good fit for all the reasons you mentioned, Martin. Um, but yet we're so stuck on that company that we don't apply for other jobs. And if the company rejects us, we just feel heartbroken for weeks. And then our job search basically stalls out and we're stuck doing something that we don't, we don't love. Versus if you become like the company where you are putting multiple irons into the fire, actually getting lots of interviews over time, because it's just mathematical, right? You know, you apply 10 jobs a day, five days a week, all of a sudden you've got, you know, several hundred opportunities out there with many of them turning into interviews. And now think about how it's going to feel when a company says, hey, we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. And you're like, that's great, but I have three final rounds tomorrow. So if you want to hire me, you're going to have to let me know a little sooner. And obviously you're going to say that in a nice tactful way, but the, the, the amazing sort of flip that does in your brain, where all of a sudden, instead of feeling the sense of scarcity and loneliness, like you mentioned, you feel a sense of bounty and surplus where you are the desirable um, commodity and everyone is chasing after you, that's a much better place to be in from a headspace perspective. Yeah, and you and I, in a, in a previous conversation we had, we talked about that a little bit of like personal branding or freelance brands that you could create for yourself. Like you can actually go create your own company page and like put it on your profile. And that's like your catch-all for any projects you do or education you do. And people have varying levels of comfort with that, right? Like designers are much more comfortable with that than maybe some accountant or something like that. And, uh, and you know, we had someone on this podcast, we had to remove the episodes uh, due to... <laughs> due to uh, the an anonymous nature of the person, but um, he has a website called Overemployed, where he actually encourages people to work two jobs at the same time oh, in order to like, this. yeah, in order to be able to like, um, <laughs> in order to be able to like truly just be like, I'm not going to that meeting or like kind of have that F you money attitude in a world where scarcity is typically the mindset. Um, and it is, you know, obviously <laughs> people have varying levels of comfort with all these different strategies, but there is something to be said about like building up your sense of self and your ability to market yourself and, and your ability to put yourself out there. Right. And, um, kind of what you're, you're saying here of not putting companies on pedestals. There was this one article that some CEO put out years ago that, uh, totally got ripped apart and critiqued, but he was basically uh, comparing a job to a marriage. And he's like, mm -hmm. when you work for my company, you're married to my company. <laughs> when you, when you work for me, you shouldn't even be looking at any other places to work. And, and I think that's extreme, but a lot of companies sort of have that perspective of like, if we find out that you're looking for another job, we're going to fire you right away. Like people are terrified to update their LinkedIn because they're worried their boss is going to see that like, oh no, I put, I updated my experience. So they're going to know that I'm going to start looking for a job in the next six months. And then I'm going to get fired. And sometimes that's in our heads. Sometimes that's actually real, but like, you know, I was talking to someone this morning about privacy filters. They don't want people to know that they're looking at their pages or anything like that. Like, yeah. where do you feel like 
privacy concerns are overblown? And where do you feel like they're totally realistic and we should be taking them into account? Yeah. And obviously, like, you know, we're saying this against the backdrop of social media in 2022 and nothing is truly private, nothing is truly safe. So obviously do what's ever comfortable for you. I would never say go against your personal ethics. That being said, I won't go back to something you said at the very beginning, Martin, which is we all spend so much more time thinking about ourselves than anyone else does, right? Like, yes, you may check out your LinkedIn profile hundred times a day, but I promise you, even the most paranoid boss is not. Um, and there are ways on LinkedIn to sort of send out a signal to recruiters at other companies you're interested your own recruiters and your own boss will never be able to see that. So you do have a, a little peace of mind that way. That being said, let's be realistic. We are in the middle of the biggest sort of turnover in jobs and talent that our country has ever seen, period. And so if you've played your cards right to build a great profile that's hitting on the right keyword that's attractive to recruiters, even without lifting another finger, once you take that first job, you're going to be hearing from recruiters on a regular basis saying, hey, I know you just started a new job. What about my company? What about my startup? And hopefully that gives you that same sense of empowerment, even after the job search has ended, where you're still a free agent, even though you're employed. So if you're loving what you're doing and your boss is awesome and you're doing the best work of your career, by all means, you know, full steam ahead. But if you're mistreated, if it's not the experience you expected, you have a million escape hatches and they're coming to you every single day. And don't you ever forget that. And so let's get into the tactics there. How do you optimize your profile for recruiters? Like what should they adjust or focus on? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this question because like this is sort of the brass tacks. So the first thing is, if you can imagine the special recruiter version of LinkedIn, they pay about $10,000 per year per seat for, uh, which is LinkedIn's biggest moneymaker. They're going to come in there and say, hey, with 700 million profiles, I got to cut to the chase right away. And by the way, that chase is not, where did you go to school? or you know, where did you grow up or whatever. It's, can you do the specific job that I'm looking to fill? Again, I'm a mercenary. So if I'm hiring a product manager, I type in product manager. If I'm hiring a designer, I type in designer. And that tells you right away that the most important keyword is always a job title. Not the one you have today, but the one you want next. And then, because there's gonna be so much text and so many candidates, LinkedIn starts to filter and triage and say, hey, Let's find people who not only have this on their profile, but specifically have it in their headline. And the reason for that is that the rest of the profile has these huge character limits, like 4,000 characters for your experience section. So you can easily stuff it full of keywords. Whereas your headline is limited to just 160 characters. So it's the least gamifiable of any portion of LinkedIn and therefore the most authentic signal of who you are and what you can really do. So you gotta have your dream job title right there in your headline. And then once they have a sense of, okay, there's you know, 50,000 people who match this, well, who actually has the skills to do the job? And so now you're going to the job description and you're basically putting it into a site like jobscan.co and trying to mine all the most important keywords. So it could be technical keywords like PHP, SQL, whatever. It could be more business focused keywords, things like ROI, A-B testing, whatever it is for your industry, for your function, you wanna make sure you've got those skills in your about section, your experience section, your skill section, because the LinkedIn recruiters can filter for them. And now they have a pretty nice list of candidates. You know, maybe they've got 500 or hundred left, but they have to pick who's going to be the one that's going to get an email, basically an invitation from me to interview at my firm. And the tricky thing for recruiters is those are limited. 
you know, even $10,000 a year only buys you maybe like 30 emails a month. And so you're going to be really picky with who you reach out to, which means that your full profile has to scream engaging, great photo, charismatic smile. Ideally, you know someone at their company, you're plugged into their firm, you've turned on open to work so they can see that you're really in the game, not just wasting their time, and you're following their company on LinkedIn. If you're sending all those signals, the recruiter can filter for those things and say, hey, there may be 700 million people on LinkedIn, 500 qualified people, but out of them, Martin is the one who's getting this lucky email. That's how you win the recruiter game. Damn, you hit on so many great things here. Um, so uh, the first one, not only the job you have today, but the one that you want next. I think a lot of people, when the imposter syndrome kicks in, they're yes. scared to put the next role that they want because God forbid someone from my current company goes in my profile, which they won't because who cares? Have you ever looked at your, your coworker's profile? No. And so uh, they, they're like, I can't put the job that I want to have because I'm not doing it yet. And I'm like, yeah, but how are you going to get the job that you want to do if you won't telling people that that's what you want to do? And it's a, you know, that's a cycle. Do, right? Exactly. Um, so definitely like take, you know, put the, put the insecurity down for a second and just, it's a LinkedIn profile. It's not a deposition, <laughs> you know, you're not under, you didn't put your hand on a Bible. Right. And there's like room for gray in this. Um, and this goes to your previous roles too. I've seen people like maybe they don't change the title that they had the last job, but they add in like did co like content creation or something because yeah. it wasn't in their yeah, title, but smart. it was the majority of their job. So getting those keywords in there, um, in the headline specifically, following the company. I don't think a lot of people think about following company pages, hugely important. And then you mentioned the open to work kind of insignia thing. And that one is one I've been curious about because I think it looks cheesy as hell, but that's just me but you called it out as like an important piece. So like what, where does, where do recruiters and, and hiring managers fall on that being important? Yeah, just to be clear, there are two variations of open to work. So two choices you can make in that um, screen. The first and the easiest one to choose is that you don't wanna have that little public sort of bubble, so to speak, surrounding your picture. Instead, you wanna send an under the radar signal just to recruiters and specifically only recruiters who don't work at your current company. So you don't have the HR team ratting you out. And you can do that really easily. And then the recruiter on their side just says, hey, only show me people who are open to work. And voila, all the wannabes are filtered away and all the serious folks are filtered in. So I I'm, think that's what everyone should be turning on as default. I'm that really being glad. Said, you, yeah, I'm glad you differentiated the two because the green one is the one that I think yeah. people like any people will also put in their headline open or uh, seeking job. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, job you're only going to be, yeah. I'm like, you're only going to be found by me. Who's looking up seeking job. Like, because <laughs> I work with that's those right, people. That's right. Uh, you're not going to be found by your recruiter, but sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. Oh yeah. I was going to say like, if we come back to the theory of weak ties and you are a free agent, like, so let's say you are unemployed or you are a student. You don't have to worry about someone looking at your photo and getting freaked out. The, the little advantage of having the, like, I'm looking for work or open to work thing is that, yeah, that person who you've lost touch with seven years ago, but is working at Google today, sees that you're looking for the exact thing that their team is hiring for, and that weak tie is the one who introduces you to the hiring manager. Um, and, Google, and LinkedIn has shown that people who have the little green circle on, I think are two times more likely to find work within 30 days. Oh, wow. It's probably a little bit of a confounded variable because probably they're more you know, aggressively looking for work and all of that. 
but there probably is something to be said for empowering your broader network to support you as opposed to doing it on your lonesome. Yeah. And does, um, I know ATS is typically for resumes and things like that, but is there any, are there any ATS considerations or is the breakdown you just gave um, covering all those points as well for the applicant tracking yeah, system? Yeah. So the, the beautiful thing is the ATS or the applicant tracking system, as your audience likely knows, is basically the same exact technology as LinkedIn's own recruiter tool, which is it's parsing, you know, millions and billions of keywords to try to figure out who matches the job description. And so if you take a resume that's already really optimized and just flat out stick all those keywords and all those great bullets onto your LinkedIn, you're going to get the same great results. Because ultimately, if you've nailed the skills and the job titles and all the stuff that the you know, ATS is looking for, that's what LinkedIn's algorithm wants as well. Awesome. And then kind of a, a divergent topic here, um, because it does come up quite often. But when it comes to ageism, um, a lot of people get worried about LinkedIn, not just because it's, you know, a social media tool, but because photos are involved, you know, and things like that. People always say like, don't put your photo on your resume because that can lead to discrimination, but also have a LinkedIn and a personal website and an online brand. It's like, well, wait a yeah. second, like <laughs> these things conflict with each other. So where, what, what about ageism in the job hunt? is real and what is more like perceived. I, I, sometimes I feel like people get in their own way with the ageism question, like people who I would never imagine would be discriminated against or like really, really worried about it. Um, but you know, there is truth behind it too. So have you sort of seen anything in regards to LinkedIn in that sort of kind of worry that exists and, and what should people actually be concerned about or how can they mitigate it? Yeah, no, it's for real. Like, and obviously it varies by industry and company and person, but like as a, another example, there was an academic study done several years ago where African-American women were less likely to be picked. And again, it was all because of that profile photo. So we know the photo is important. We know that if you have a photo, you're 10 times more likely to be selected by a recruiter, but all those unfortunate human biases are still present depending on the person. So that being said, how do you figure out how to sort of navigate that? I think the first thing is you gotta do your research. So figure out the companies and industries you're excited about. If you go to their directories and you see only 25 year olds, that's probably a warning sign. And again, there is this question of like, even if you could get the job, would you want that job if that's their culture? Then if you decide, hey, I still wanna go for it. I wanna break through this thing no matter what, because this is my dream. Then you figure out how do you sort of play against those biases? And there's all sorts of ways to do it. You know, like there's nothing that says on LinkedIn, you have to have your graduation day from college or you have to have every single job you've had dating back to the 1970s. LinkedIn, just like your resume, is your story. And because it's your narrative, you get to edit the way you want and tell the things that you want to focus on. So make sure that you focus on your most recent accomplishments, the things that are most tied to the job, and don't get caught up in letting all this other baggage hold you back. And ultimately, if you own your story, you give yourself the best odds. I love that. Yeah, it kind of brings me to this idea that I've been telling people a lot lately, which is treat companies and talk to companies the way they treat you. Uh, the company yeah. isn't putting the truth in their job description. They're giving you their idealized uh, posting, right? So you shouldn't be, it, usually the company is like overconfident and the job seeker is like underconfident, right? And I'm, I'm just trying to get us to match their energy, right? And so- um, you know, they're not going to tell you that this job is open because the last person burnt out because we gave them three people's jobs after we did layoffs. Like they're going to go, this is a great place to grow and be mentored. <laughs> like, right. So you shouldn't show up and be like, 
you know, I'll see people put on their profile, like, um, aspiring cybersecurity analyst. And I'm like, you're not aspiring. You either are, or you aren't right. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, we don't need these, um, negative clarifiers, uh, that maybe make us feel good because we don't feel good. Um, but it just, it just really shoots us in the foot. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the last thing as we get to the end here, the last question I want to ask you is what are the cringiest things that we should avoid in 2022 when it comes to LinkedIn? What are some examples of cringe that you've seen out there? Yeah, so it's funny, you know, LinkedIn and all of its benevolent data science wisdom used to put together like this annual list of like the worst cliches that were popping up on LinkedIn profiles, things like data ninja or like, um, you know, programming wizard or whatever. So obviously try to avoid anything that like maybe shoots yourself in the foot from like a humble team player perspective. Um, that being said, I do think the very worst thing you can do on your profile is not to be overly cocky, but to be underly cocky. To like say, hey, you know, um, I've done a couple of things, but you know, it's up to you to recruit and figure out why they connect to the job. I'm just gonna throw out the bare minimum. Because again, life is too short to miss out on an awesome opportunity because we were too afraid to put ourselves out there. Um, there's something that my grandfather always said, you've got to always toot your own horn because no one's going to toot it for you. And I think that's doubly true on LinkedIn. So please toot your horn, toot it proudly and make the most of this unique opportunity. I love that. And, and like to also remember that there's people out there over tooting their horn. And so yes. like what you probably feel is too much is probably still not enough <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> at the right. end of the day to compete. Um, Jeremy, thank you so much for going through all this with us. I think this has been like the, you know, boots on the ground, like tactical stuff that we've really, people really need um, as we head into this year. Uh, what, where can people find more about what you're working on and what you've got going? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, and I love having the chance to connect with your um, listenership. I will tell folks that they want to go even deeper into the weeds and achieve true like LinkedIn nerddom like I have. Um, we actually have a new book coming out, a LinkedIn friend of me, um, called Linked. It's coming out in late uh, April. And there's some special bonuses just for listening to this podcast. If you go to the thejobinsiders.com slash linked, you can actually get a free webinar um, on all these tactics, all visually demonstrated. So here's how you would update your profile. Here's how you would prep for an interview using LinkedIn's new virtual interview tools, or even win one-on-one um, -on -one LinkedIn coaching from my co-author and myself. So if you go to thejobinsiders.com slash linked, you can pre-order the book and get access to all those goodies. And no matter whether you take advantage of that or anything else, just wish you tremendous success in this exciting new year. I love it. We'll have all that linked in the description and everyone go connect with Jeremy on LinkedIn, right? Why not? Let's do it. You got it. Uh, appreciate your time today. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity, Martin. Good luck to everyone. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.